all of life is clay in the hands of the potter. He holds the good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly, the upright and the disgraceful. The remarkable thing about the Father is that he is able to take all of the pieces of life and work them into a unique masterpiece. When all I am encounters the great I am, the result is transformation, blessing, and life. Hey, Seth. Thanks for being here this morning. I am super excited about what we get to talk about. Um, my name is Josh Billings. I'm the, the new brand spanking new executive pastor here at South. Uh, Josh Suddeth, earlier the youth pastor, said it pretty well. You guys have done an amazing, amazing job at making us feel at home here. It's only been um, two months and, and, some, and some days. So um, I already feel like this is my place and, and, and you are my family. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, and I am so excited to be here. Um, you know, uh, Ryan and I were talking about this series, and we were talking about which, which section I would take. Uh, and as we began to talk, it was clear that uh, Crazy Uncle Laban would be the one that I get to talk about. So I get to talk to you about Crazy Uncle Laban. And, you know, as I was thinking about Crazy Uncle Laban, I was like, do I have any Crazy Uncle Labans in my life? And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, and then I realized something. I am the Crazy Uncle Laban in my life. And I feel so bad for all my nieces and nephews, but it's okay. I think we'll get through it. So uh, I'm excited, but let's just go to, go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, you, are, you are a powerful, loving, forgiving God, and we thank you for that. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for what you do in your word in our hearts. And I ask God that as we sit, we wait patiently for, for your stirrings, that we would learn what you would have us know, uh, and that we would know more about you after this morning is over. We love you, and in your name, amen. So one of the things that um, I do is uh, I read through my passage as many times as I can when I prepare for a sermon. And uh, as I was reading through this one, I read through it a couple times, and I'm going, God, what, you know, what kind of analogy do I use? What kind of story do I bring up? And, um, and something hit me, and um, this man came to mind, old Benedict Arnold, one of the greatest deceivers and traitors in American history. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about Arnold is I thought I knew the story pretty well. Uh, but as it turns out, I had only scratched the surface of what really was going on in Benedict Arnold's life when he betrayed the American forces. Um, see, the thing is, is Arnold had been dealt a pretty tough hand in life. Uh, and, and that's no joke. He had some pretty significant challenges to overcome, and he had struggled and struggled to be a successful general in the American um, army. Uh, he had had some success in several battles previous to his treason, but it was limited. And to make matters worse for him, his comrades or his colleagues, other generals, had been known to take credit for his um, uh, very few successes that he had experienced. To make matters worse for, for old Arnold, he um, had very little money. He lived with an incredibly high level of debt, and he was constantly borrowing money. Uh, in fact, at one point, his, uh, his co-officers took him to court uh, and demanded that he be court-martialed for, for some of the issues that he had. Uh, they found him innocent of those charges, but the stigma stuck with him. He was uh, tried and tried to be court-martialed for him uh, to be removed from, from service. Uh, so he was a widower, he had a wife, but uh, she passed away, and at 37, he met someone by the name of Sweet Little Peggy. And Sweet Little Peggy was 17 years old 
when he married her. Isn't that sweet? Odd, odd culture. Okay, so um, the interesting thing about Peggy is, is Benedict Arnold thought that she had all this money. But as it turns out, she didn't. She had status, which back in those days were two very different things. She had status. She knew a lot of people. She had connections. Her family had connections. And it's through Peggy, sweet little Peggy, that he made his connections to the British military. So um, because of his difficult life, he decided to commit treason. He decided to go against the forces that he served and, and commit treason with the British uh, military. And it was a really a pretty simple plan. He's not a genius guy. He had a pretty simple plan. He was going to let uh, George Washington trust him enough to take um, over a very important fort, West Point. Maybe you've heard of it. West Point Fort in New York, right at the, at the edge of the Hudson River. Um, this fort was so powerful that it was considered the sticking point of the war. Whoever controlled this fort had a really good chance at winning the war. And so he, he succeeded. He got Washington's trust, and he took over the fort. Washington allowed him to take the fort, and then he began weakening it from the inside out. Interesting. He, uh, he, he let supplies diminish and he didn't do the updates to the structure of the, of the facility like he should have. He did all these things to weaken it. So it was, in, it was kind of in a weak state. Um, and then through his wife, Peggy, he introduced himself to a British officer. And the plan was, essentially, to just kind of give the keys of the fort to the British officer and him sneak away in the night and be scot-free. Um, the British government had promised to bring him back into the British fold and to give him huge amounts of money and to take care of him for the rest of his life. You see the enticement, right? Fortunately for us, <laughs> fortunately for George Washington, his plot was found out. His, his uh, co-conspirator was found and, and captured, and on him was documentation about what Benedict Arnold was doing. So as soon as Benedict Arnold found that out, he jumped in a boat and he crossed the Hudson River to the British side. But for poor, sweet little Peggy, she was left behind. She found herself in enemy territory, the American forces, and they had her captured. Um, uh, Benedict Arnold wrote a letter to George Washington pleading for her life. And he said, if you are the man that I know you are, if you have the stature that I know you have, if you are honorable like I know you are, you will release her. And George did. He released her and he gave her an armed escort all the way back to Philadelphia to reunite with Benedict Arnold. Now, as the war continued, Benedict Arnold was not received the way he had anticipated being received by the British government. As it turns out, once a traitor, always a traitor, or so everyone assumed. And he did not get the lump sum monies that he had been promised. He didn't get the land or the estates or anything. And he found himself in a very poor state. So he decided to write George Washington again to ask for money. This is the way he started out his letter requesting financial aid. He said, When your excellency considers my sufferings and the cruel situation in, I am in, your own humanity and feelings as a soldier will render everything I can say further on the subject unnecessary. One of the greatest deceptions of, of American history, and his response is, if you knew the pain that I was in, 
you would understand. Well, George had been fooled once. He did not send the money. But the interesting thing is how slippery the road is of playing the victim. And that's exactly the struggle with Benedict Arnold. He played the victim. You know, as I go through the story of Jacob, this, the narrative that we've been looking at, there is a lot of victims. It is a pretty tough story. There's a lot of deception, a deceit, and bitterness. The section I have to go through is quite large, so we're going to be looking at chapters 28 through 30, but have no fear. I'm not going to read it all to you. No, you can do that later. Please do it later. It's a fascinating story. I'm only going to uh, cherry pick a couple of passages that I want to look at. So last week, to kind of keep you up to speed, where we are in the story, last week Jacob had betrayed his brother Esau. He deceived his, brother, his father Isaac, and he at this point has fled into Laban's territory. Jacob has traveled a great distance, and he has, he has overcome several difficult obstacles in the journey. But as he arrives in, in Paddan Aram, uh, Laban's territory, he almost immediately meets Rachel at a watering hole. Now, as the audience would be reading this story, as soon as he arrives in Paddan Aram and he is at the well to meet the new bride, they're immediately going to go, oh, this is a parallel story. See, Abraham's servant years and years before, Abraham had sent his servant to find a wife for his son, Isaac. See, the, but there is a, a stark difference in the parallel stories. One of the biggest stark differences is the servant, Abraham's servant, was obsessed with God. He was obsessed with what Yahweh thought. He was obsessed with the way he thought Yahweh wanted him to act. And he came into this area and he prayed. And he said, Lord, show me the woman. Show me the woman that you've picked out. Let her be the one that carries her water jar on her shoulder. And let her be the one that when I ask, gives me a drink. And let her be the one who even asks, can you give my camels a drink? She does that too. A little, she did it. Who would do that? Who would feed somebody's camels? Anyway, she did. The story parallels are, are very uh, stark. Here in our story, there's no mention of Jacob praying to God and asking, Lord, which, which woman would you have me take? There's no mention of it, and even though in the story before, and we're a little uh, mixed up in our, our timeline, but Ryan is going to talk about the story before next week. Um, previously, in his journey, the Lord had showed up and given him a dream and given him this promise, and, and this has to be fresh on Jacob's mind, what the Lord is doing, yet no mention of him praying. So he, he uh, introduces himself to Rachel, and there's almost instant electricity. There's magic in the air, there's love in the air, and he falls almost immediately in love with this woman. He introduces himself to Laban and almost immediately agrees to work seven hard years of hard labor for her hand in marriage. Now, as Laban is introduced to the story, again, that parallel becomes very evident because lo and behold, crazy Uncle Laban was present when the servant of Abraham came looking for Rebekah, Isaac's uh, future wife. It, it makes a point, the text makes a point in the previous story that Laban notices, he notices the jewels and the, 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 the jewelry that the, the servant has given Rebecca already. And he notices the 10 camels. Who travels with 10 camels? This guy does. Laban sees it and he notices and he tries to work a little bit more resources out of the servant in order to get a better trade. 
Everyone knows that that's what Laban's like. So immediately you come to this story with a little bit of back history of crazy Uncle Laban. So it's no surprise when, when Jacob falls in love with Rachel and promises way too much of a dowry, the dowry requirements are set out in Leviticus, and he's looking at between two and three times more than what was allowed for the greatest dowry. It's no secret and no surprise that Laban goes, oh, seven years, you say. Interesting. I think I'll take that deal. You can almost feel Laban looking Jacob up and down going, ah, I've been here before. What are you going to offer me? Oh, seven years. Okay. So, seven years goes by. He works hard labor. But it's, there's this cool little line in the text that says it was only like a few days to Jacob because of his love for Rachel. Isn't that sweet? Oh. Seven years comes up. And you have this, ex- this, change, this, this strange exchange between Laban and, and Jacob. Jacob is demanding his wife. And you're like, whoa. He, he says, look it, Laban, I've worked seven years. Give me my wife. You owe me my wife. Laban says, calm down, big guy. We'll get it taken care of. Everybody's cool. He sets up the, the wedding party. Everything's going well as planned. Um, there's probably a lot of alcohol involved at these sorts of uh, soirees, if you will. And he uh, swaps Leah, or he swaps Rachel with Leah in the night. Isaac, or I'm sorry, Jacob, probably pretty intoxicated, spends the night with Leah instead of Rachel. Now, now I want to take a second and, and just time out. Have you ever thought of Leah in this? Have you ever thought, thought of what was going through this poor woman's mind? Her dad sets up a, a deception for this newcomer, and this newcomer obviously is infatuated with Rachel to the point that seven years feels like several days. That's a pretty big infatuation. Yet she is forced to marry this man. She knows he doesn't love her. She 